Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. I'd also like to extend a welcome to you if you're visiting with us this weekend. We are glad to have you here. And as you've heard several times, you come on our 25th anniversary weekend. It's been an encouragement to, um, to be able to celebrate this weekend, be able to hear some of the stories of the years that have gone by and of God's goodness to us. As Camper did, I want to give a special welcome and thanks to, uh, to Mord and Jenny Whitman and Tom and Cheryl Darnell, our former pastors. We're glad that you're here. And as I've heard the stories, I've been reminded of what a privilege it is to be a pastor here of this church and uh, the, um, just in, in awe of all that's gone before it's it's humbling and so um, it's an honor to be your pastor and it's an honor to do that in partnership with camper I'm, I'm thankful that we get to do that together here we've been uh, for the past number of months somebody joked this weekend that we've been doing this for about eight months it hadn't been that long but we've been in the book of James uh, and we're going to take a brief step away from James this morning in honor of our anniversary and we're going to look at uh, we'll be in a different place in scripture we're going to be in John chapter 2 so if you'd like to be turning there You'll find that on page 887 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. As you turn in there, I was thinking about this weekend and the right celebrating of it. I remember a story of when I was in college and a friend and mentor of mine, I think, who thought I was often a little bit too dour about my life. He reminded me, he said, you know, some things are worth celebrating. There's joy to be had. Some things are worth celebrating, and that is why together this weekend we have celebrated God's faithfulness to us. We believed that um, as we read Scripture and as we seek to follow God, that it was actually deeply biblical and profoundly spiritual that we threw a party to say thank you, to enjoy God's goodness to us. And this passage this morning is about another party. It's going to remind us of how central this idea is of what it means to follow Jesus. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in with John chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We've celebrated it this weekend. In many ways, we'll have our eyes on it all year as this is the 25th year of this church, actually with roots that extend beyond that. Lord, you have been good to us as a congregation. So we thank you. Thank you for all the good work you've done, for the blessing you have been to the people in this church. And we uh, thank you now as we turn to look in your word at John 2, that you are a God who speaks to us, that that is one of the most uh, profound and tangible ways you show your care is that you speak into our lives through the pages of Scripture. So we pray right now that you would open our our eyes to your word and our hearts, open your word to our hearts, that we might know you better, that we might be changed by our uh, communion with you. And we look to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, 
When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given for our good and for his glory. So to it now we turn. You know, I'm struck by the fact that uh, this story, I mean, it's about what you think it is. It's about a party. And it was about uh, a rockin' party. It was about a very fun party. And, I, you know, I'm just struck, you know, if, if you're just walking in uh, to church or this church for the first time or any, this might not be the story you'd expect to be confronting you this morning. Uh, Jesus doing what we're going to find out is his very first miracle, uh, spectacular in a different way from many of the miracles you might be uh, more familiar with. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the story. We're just going to go back through it, tell the story, see what's actually going on, see what the point is of what Jesus is doing here. And there is a point. And then talk a little bit about what it means for us, especially, you know, here on the the brink of celebrating 25 years together. So just looking at the story, it opens up and we have Jesus says that it's on the third day. Okay. We're in John chapter two. If you were to go back just a little bit in John chapter 1, you'd find out the first day was when uh, John the Baptist at the Jordan baptizing people looks over and sees Jesus. And he says, behold the Lamb of God. The very beginning of Jesus' public ministry when he is revealed to the world, though in such a small way, and it takes a long, long time for it to grow. But in there, in that very beginning, you've got John the Baptist pointing to Jesus saying, here is who this man is, day one. Now we're here on the third day. That's where we open up in this first week of um, Jesus's, uh, uh, excuse me, not third day. This is actually close to the seventh day of, of Jesus's uh, ministry. It's the third day now after he's been uh, called forth by Nathaniel and identified by him. So there's these seven days and it's culminating here in this feast. And Jesus is at a wedding feast. And based on the fact that it goes out of its way to point out that Jesus' mother had been invited and was there, and that Jesus and his disciples, there's a good chance this might have been a family member, maybe, who was being married, some sort of close relative, maybe a friend. In any case, we see in a minute that that Mary, Jesus' mother, is pretty intimately tied with the problem that comes up in the wedding. So they're there at this wedding, and and a terrible problem comes up, right? I mean, we're, we're sort of laughing, right? But what happens? Well, the wine runs out. Now... We listen to that. Maybe you don't think that's a, maybe you don't think that's a terrible problem. Uh, but they certainly did. In fact, you know, we look at this and kind of laugh. Uh, one pastor, Tim Keller, refers to this incident as a catering disaster. Right? You know, here, that's the heart of what's going on here. Something horrible has happened. Well, for these people in this culture, it would have been a great, it would have been a great shame in a in a culture that's marked by the difference between honor and shame. For a family to throw a wedding party, and it was the responsibility of the groom to make sure there was enough wine for the party, it would have been, it would have been brought great shame on the family to have run out. Because the party would have run out. It would have been over. And wedding feasts in that day might likely have lasted for seven days. And here they are on the seventh culminating day. And the wine runs out. And Mary comes to Jesus Gives him, you know, seemingly this innocuous news. You know, Jesus, uh, they've run out of wine. Uh, and Jesus gives what it comes across as a very fairly brusque answer. And, and, it, and it really kind of is. It's not, it, would, it wouldn't have been considered rude, but it was, there was a little bit of distance here. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
Okay, it brings up the question, what was Mary expecting when she came and talked to Jesus? Because John goes out of his way, and we'll see this, to, to point out that this is Jesus' first miracle. So it's not like Jesus has been, you know, turning water to wine at the dinner table growing up, and she just wants him to, you know, pull out a trick now. You know, she has not seen him do anything like that. What is she expecting? And, and we don't know. It may well be that at this point in their family life that Joseph has passed away and Jesus is the oldest son would have been the one that she would turn to when there are things that need to be fixed. And maybe she comes to him hoping that he could come up with some sort of solution. John Calvin suggested that maybe uh, it, it's possible that Mary was turning to Jesus and, and knowing, you know, something of his, certainly his piety and his, his greatness, and, you know, maybe hoping that he would offer some comforting words to the crowd. You know, it's a wedding, the wine has run out, let's not let that dampen our joy, you know. Uh, I have a, had a friend preaching on this, and he said, you know, in that case, the, the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine would have been replaced with a different miracle, Jesus convincing the partygoers that water was better than wine. But in any case, whatever, whatever Mary thinks she's asking, Jesus does two things. On the one hand, he, he puts some distance between himself and Mary, and he says, in, in, in effect, he says, first of all, why are you coming to me with this? My hour has not yet come. And he lets her know, you know, I, I'm not... I'm not just going to snap to the bidding of everyone around me. I will do my thing in my time. But then he graciously steps in and actually does step into the situation uh, to bring a solution. And he says, my hour has not yet come. We'll get back to that in a minute, but very significant statement of Jesus. But let's go on to what he does. He turns to the servants and he says, okay, I want you to go take these six uh, large stone jars and fill them up to the brim with water. He points out that these jars and this water were used for ceremonial cleansing. Likely the guests would have come in and as a part of both the necessity but also the ceremony of it. They would have, they would have washed their hands. They would have cleansed themselves before the meal. And these acts of ceremonial cleansing were constant reminders to the Jewish people that they were people always in need of cleansing before God. You know what it's like as soon as you wash your hands or at least when your kids do. They immediately start getting dirty again, right? cleansing that must happen again and again. And Jesus says, take those jars and fill them up. So they do. They fill them up to the brim. It says each of them are 20 or 30 gallons. And then they draw from that and they find that it is turned to wine. So they take this wine to the master of ceremonies, the master of the banquet, the one that who is responsible to keep the party moving and who would have certainly been aware that the wine had run out and they're in the midst of a potential social disaster as that was going to become known to the party goers. He tastes this wine and he, he calls the groom over and he says, you know, we know how parties go. I mean, typically what you do is you serve the good stuff early on and everybody drinks a little bit and then you can slip in the stuff that's not so good because they're not going to notice. But you've done exactly the opposite. He says, you have saved the very best wine until now, this climactic moment of the celebration. And then we see that, you know, in the midst of this, Jesus has done this amazing thing and only a few people know about it. The servants know about it. The disciples know about it, but uh, the rest of the party simply seemingly just goes on, unaware of what an amazing thing has happened in their midst. Okay, so there you have it. That's what Jesus does. Now, why? What's the point? Uh, John says, look with me at verse 11. He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Okay, if you're familiar with the book of John, you know that, that 
the first half of John is structured around what are called these seven signs, these seven miracles, signs are John's favorite word for these miraculous acts of Jesus. And these seven signs uh, include ra- the raising of Lazarus from the dead, of healing sick people, doing all these amazing things. But his very first sign, his inaugural sign, the way he starts his whole public ministry is with this sign. He changes water into wine at a party. Now John sums up at the end, towards the end of his book what the purpose of these signs are. Listen to what he says in John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, did you catch that? John says, I'm telling you about these signs so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you will put your faith in him. Okay, that's what the purpose of a sign is. And that brings up the question, changing water into wine, what is that supposed to tell me about Jesus? I mean, why did John think that was so incredibly crucial that he, he is the, the only one of the gospel writers to, to bring this story before us? He says, if we're going to know Jesus, then we need to know about this Jesus who turns water into wine at a wedding feast because it is a sign of something. You know what signs are? You drive by uh, our church you know, driveway, you see a sign says Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church, tells you when the worship services are. Signs convey information. Well, this is a particular kind of sign, a sign that, that actually enacts something. It's, in, in many ways, this functions, many of Jesus' signs, his actual actions, his historical deeds function as these symbolic acts as well. They carry a certain freight. They bring, they bring a certain message as Jesus does them. When you think about the ways uh, things are enacted out in front of us that are signs for us, I'm caught a few minutes of Mythbusters on TV, and they were going back and talking about the uh, raising of the flag on the moon when Neil Armstrong went there in 1969. Maybe some people in this room, you don't think it was real, it was hoaxed. Anyway, so they're they're investigating that. And so it it just reminded me of that incident when all of America and 500 million people around the world were watching their TV, and they saw Neil Armstrong step out onto the surface of the moon, and what what did he do? He, He planted a flag. Now, pretend for a minute you don't know the significance of that. You're just watching this guy. You don't have the cultural context. And what do you do? You see this guy walking around on the moon. He takes a stick out and he plunges it in the ground. And it's got this sort of colored piece of fabric on it. And you think, you know, it it wouldn't mean anything to you. But for us, especially for us uh, who are Americans here in America, what do we do? We look at that and we see that's the American flag. If it had been in color, we would have seen the red, white, and blue. And we look at that and we say, that means something to us. Mankind has been on the moon. An American went there. What does that say about our country? You know, it would bring up all these kind of associations for us. Because to see a flag planted for us is a sign. And for them to see this miracle happening at this feast would also have been a sign Because in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, uh, wine shows up as a sign for several things, as we'll see. But one, and primarily, is the wine is a symbol for joy. It's a symbol for life that is is enjoyed by us. Uh, Let me give you an example. This comes from Psalm 104, speaking in praise to God. He says, You cause the grass to grow 
for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. He said this is a part of our feasting. It's a gift to us, and it symbolizes joy. I was thinking about this a number of years ago. I was speaking to my father-in-law, and maybe you have had conversations like this with your children or or with your parents where my father-in-law is in great health, but you have that conversation about, about funerals and funeral plans. So I had part of that conversation with my father-in-law. And he didn't say anything about, you know, whether or not he wants to be cremated. He didn't say anything about whether or not he has a living will. The one thing he told me about his funeral is he said, at the reception, I want you, I want you to make sure that they serve shrimp and good wine. <laughs> That's what he cared about at his funeral. Because he knew that there was something there, especially for him, a believer in Jesus as he was going to go to be united with his God, he said, I want, I want there to be a celebration. And I want it to be the kind of reception that I'd want to go to. So I want there to be shrimp and good wine. Again, because some things are worth celebrating. He said there is something beautiful about that. Because wine, again, one of the symbols in the Old Testament of this kind of joy. Wine also symbolizes the coming of God's kingdom in all its fullness and glory. I'm going to just read two passages from you from the prophets, and there are many. This comes from Amos chapter 9. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities that inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. In Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And he pictures that great day of the return of Jesus as this feast that comes. With all the glory of a feast. And the joy that comes with the wine. Now, here's where it gets a little complicated. So stick with me. You have this one strand of thought running through Scripture of of wine being associated with joy and the goodness of God's creation. Now, at the same time running through Scripture, you also have woven in this other idea, this other sign and the symbol of wine as a symbol of God's judgment. In fact, as a symbol of God's wrath that is poured out against sin. And against mankind who has turned its back on God. Now, Jesus has that in mind. Both those ideas when he says this. And this is one of the crucial statements in the passage. When his mother comes to him and he says this, verse 4. My hour has not yet come. When he says that, he's not saying, you know, I know we ran out of wine, but it's not yet 5 o'clock. And it's not time to turn it, you know, turn water into wine. He says, my hour has not come. And in the book of John, all throughout it, when Jesus speaks of my hour coming, leading up to John chapter 12, when it shifts, and he says, my hour has come, the, the coming of his hour always has to do with Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, let that just sink in for a minute about how weird this story really is, right? Okay, Mary comes up. Uh, They've run out of wine. He says, why are you asking me? He says, it's not time for me to die yet. 
And then he goes on to act. But for Jesus, he has these two pictures in mind, both this wine that comes to gladden the heart, this picture of God's goodness. But he also knows that there's another kind of wine and another kind of cup that runs through Scripture as well. One of God's uh, righteous wrath. Here's the way we hear it in the Old Testament. This comes from Psalm 75. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And this is a cup in my, Jesus has in mind both at the Last Supper and prior to that, in, or excuse me, after that in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is praying before uh, his arrest. This is in Matthew 26. It says, Going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. After that, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, John chapter 18 tells us this. Peter takes out his sword to defend Jesus. And then Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So here again, you have both these pictures, two different cups. story starts out in John chapter 2, and there is this cup of God's blessing and His richness and joy. And at the same time, Jesus is saying, my hour has not come. There is another cup that will come. And you hear Him speaking about this cup at the end of His life. Throughout John and throughout Scripture, we have these two pictures of the cup and of wine woven together. So which is it? Which is it? Which one, which one, and here may be a better question, which one do we get, right? Two very different cups. We find here that these two cups are woven together in Jesus. Because what does he say towards the end of his ministry? He says, there is that other cup, and I will drink it. I will take it. When his death on the cross was a picture of him taking this cup from the hands of his father and drinking in all of the judgment for sin that the world deserved, that his people had heaped upon their heads, he took that cup and drank it for us. So Jesus stands at that wedding saying, there is another cup coming and I'm going to be the one who drinks it. He drinks it so that we can drink this other cup. So we, like the people at this party in John chapter 2, can take the other cup, the cup of God's goodness, of His gladness, of His joy. Jesus came so that His people, all who turn to Him in faith, will never have to drink that other cup because He took it for us. And so though no one knew what was going on in John chapter 2, they saw Jesus performing this miracle, His disciples did. It says they even put their faith in Him. But at this point in the story, they don't know the full significance of this. But one day they will, when they experience walking side by side with Jesus, as He does drink that cup for them, and as He drinks that cup for us. Okay, now that's what's going on. You've got this story about wine and a party and two kinds of wine and Jesus coming in as his first sign saying, this party is going to tell you something about me. See all these people rejoicing? There's a reason for them to rejoice. Here is the cup of blessing. What does it mean for us? Let me just conclude with just a couple thoughts. Especially for us as we're thinking on this anniversary weekend. For us... Is this one church of God's people, 
one of many, 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 that this joy, this feast, this wine is for us, God's people. He says, this party is for us. This cup of blessing is handed to us. And look at the way Jesus provides for them at this feast. Again, it's the last day of the feast. They come and say, we're out of wine. And what does he do? He takes six jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons, and he turns them all to wine. 150, 180 gallons of the world's best wine at the end of what's becoming the world's best party. Right? This wine flowed abundantly. More than enough. God's graciousness and his joy poured out on his people and poured out on us. The very best stuff. Master of the Feast says, and you normally bring out the, the lesser quality at the end, but you've brought out the best for now. You've brought it out now. And we're to enjoy it now. Maybe for many of us what we need to do is just grab hold this week of this particular picture of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. There really is this feast. And we've been invited to it. We really do get real taste of His goodness, the good wine of His presence now. The Bible tells us that this story ends in a feast. We see this at the end of Revelation, where Jesus returns as the great coming bridegroom to collect His bride at another wedding feast. And He says, when that feast comes, I will sit down again with my bride who is my people, my church, us. And He says, then I will pick up the cup again. Then we will have the feast of all feasts. Then we will drink this wine again with him. But this time, there will be no shadow to darken the party. No sense of regret. None of the longings. None of the broken places because they will have all been healed. This will be a party that doesn't end. But this wine is for us even now. Now. This week, some of us maybe need to hear this. Maybe, and this might sink in for some of you as you think about this this week, and I'd encourage you to go back and read John 2. But as you think about it this week, you may come to the gradual realization of, you know, a lot of my following Jesus, it really hasn't felt like this cup of wine. I haven't seen much of the joy of it. And if that's the case, listen to what John chapter 2 says to us. There is a feast. If you put your faith in Jesus, you have been brought in. This wine really is offered to you. To us, in the middle of all our struggles, brokenness that's very much still there, gives us taste of His goodness and His joy. Maybe we just need to pray that we would taste it more deeply. That we would know His joy more fully. That we would see it spring up in our lives. That's a good prayer. Maybe we ought to pray it this week. This joy, this feast is for us. But the second thing, this joy, this feast, is what we have to offer others. This is the goodness of following Jesus that we have to offer to others, our neighbors, our friends, for some of us, our family members, the people here in this city. We've talked this, this uh, weekend about 25 years of being uh, a congregation of God's people here in this city, wanting to make His name known here. And we are called to continue that great mission. We are called to bring the gospel to the lives of the people around us. This gospel. The gospel of this joy. Who do you know that doesn't know this? I was thinking 
the other night where uh, some of our neighbors and friends in our neighborhood uh, get together on Friday nights in the spring and in the summer and uh, go down to the James River and they take a couple bottles of wine and they pull out their, uh, their lawn chairs and they drink a, cup of, a glass of wine and they watch the sun go down and they enjoy each other's company. I haven't made it out there this spring, but I'm looking forward to it. Because what happens in a moment like that? Even with people who are sitting down and enjoying that who may be miles away from knowing anything about Jesus or the power of him in their lives, in that very moment, as they take that sip of wine, as they see that sunset, as they enjoy the goodness of their friends around them, they are getting a taste of a goodness that comes straight from God, even though they don't know it. Remember what happened at this feast. Jesus turns all this water into this amazing wine, and who knew about it? The servants? The disciples, nobody else, everybody else was enjoying the party. And when we have those moments with our friends and family and others around us who don't know the Lord, whether they know it or not, they are tasting an actual taste of God's goodness. But don't they need to, don't they need to know that? Don't they need to know where this goodness really comes from? This real, solid joy that they're getting a fleeting taste of comes from our good and gracious God. Who throws a party. And we know about that party. And we know that good and gracious God. And God graciously allows us to go into those situations. And say let me tell you about an even better party. This is good. Let me tell you about the one that's even better. See this wine that is poured out for us. This feast. The goodness and joy of God's presence is lavished on us. He brings it to us not simply to enjoy for ourselves. But that we may offer it to the world around us. May we do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't simply meet our needs, that your goodness just overflows in richness and bounty to us. We thank you for this picture of this marriage feast and all the pictures of marriage feasts that culminate at the end of the Bible, even of you coming back to feast with us. Lord, we are a people desperately in need of your presence, need of the joy that you bring. Would you help us drink more deeply of that this week? And as we do, may we see more and more clearly how beautiful and how needed it is for our world around us too. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.